at least once a week uh, some version of this. Uh, my child wants nothing to do with the church. Uh, from parents whose child whose children grew up in or around the church but have walked away and you know I don't hear that as being a concern about the institution per se uh, but if you have kids we want them to be happy and for many of us that means helping them connect or reconnect or stay connected to Jesus and uh, it's weird is one word that if you love Jesus you want to worship him publicly and sing to Him and hear about Him, and yet most of our church cultures appear to form people in ways that don't seem all that Jesus-like. And that can be, uh, that can be hard, that can be confusing. Uh, maybe you too have wondered, where do I belong? And you might feel reticent to suggest that you are in some way better informed or better because we're conflicted about this, and yet most of us can't quite shake this intuition we have that church is broken. Uh, something about the tone or the posture is off, or at least it doesn't smell like Jesus. I don't even think it's controversial to say the church has an image problem. The leadership strategist Kerry Newhoff says only 21% of those outside the church have a positive impression of the church. Now that's a problem, especially uh, if you believe one way to talk about the mission of the church is the church exists for the sake of those who aren't yet a part of it. That's a problem when four out of five want no part of it. <laughs> and it's kind of a controversial proof if your child comes to you and says, uh, Mom, Dad, I've got something to tell you. I'm gay. Why if our kid comes out of the closet, might we feel like we have to go in one at church? Can we approach our kids and honestly say that the community we're asking them to stay in or come back to is one in which they will find just as much encouragement and sense of belonging? I mean, if you were in their shoes and you were gay or same-sex attracted, would you want to engage in most expressions of the church that you have known? It seems, at least in the West, that we have lost something foundational to our faith. I want us to focus tonight on a famous passage. Most all of you know it. Some of you know it by heart. can recite it chapter and verse. In fact, it's so familiar, I believe we're prone to overlook what's so radical about it. And I mean radical in that word's most basic meaning as in back to the root. That's what this passage is, Matthew 22. These words take us to the root, the heart, of what is most important to God's heart. So, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, records a lawyer, a specialist in the law, approaching Jesus and asking Him a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The word is mega. <laughs> greatest, most important. Of the 600 plus laws of God, uh, including the Big Ten, <laughs> which one is the greatest? And this passage is so familiar, I think we uh, can overlook what is astonishing in Jesus' answer. First, Jesus gives a straightforward answer to the question, which is very unusual for Jesus. Most always, He responds to a question with a question or a story, especially in situations like this where the Pharisees are trying to test Him. Second, Jesus actually picks a greatest commandment. 
which is not necessarily what we would have expected when speaking of God's commandments. I mean, aren't they all divine? Aren't they all perfect? Aren't they all equally inspired and therefore equally important? Which is sometimes how we treat controversial matters, all hills to die on. But Jesus doesn't treat everything as equally important. He does not equalize God's commands. Apparently, Jesus didn't have a problem prioritizing some parts of the Bible over others. Jesus answers the lawyer's question, which is the greatest? Of course, He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He quotes the book of Deuteronomy and says, this is the first that is of paramount importance. This is the organizing principle and greatest commandment. Here's what's most important to my Father, most important to me. Love. And then before the lawyer can get a word in, <laughs> Jesus continues. And that's surprising as well, right? The lawyer asks which one and Jesus gives two. A bonus. Can't single out one without adding. And the second is like it. And I wonder if you've ever paid attention to that little word, like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like unto it. Why is it like it? Well, it's easy to say you love God, whom you can't see, but how we know that we love God is if we love our neighbor, whom we can see. And your neighbor, Jesus makes clear in another famous story, which features a despised and feared ethnic enemy. Today it might be the parable of the good Palestinian. Your neighbor is the human being next to you. In other words, whether we love God or not is demonstrated in whether we love human beings who live and move beside us. We fulfill the first and greatest commandment by following the second. The second is like it. Which is why in another context, the Bible says, this is Galatians 6 verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul says, and, and maybe you've wondered, is Paul editing Jesus? <laughs> you know, why does he just focus on the second half? It's the, the same point that the second is the demonstration of the first. And if this weren't devastating enough, in another context, Jesus makes clear that how we ourselves have experienced the love of God, how we've experienced the love of God personally and individually, will be revealed in how we love how much or how little we love the sinner in front of us. And my phrasing is deliberate, as Jesus says in another story, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. <clears throat> We're starting to get uncomfortable yet. <laughs> now back to Matthew chapter 22, after Jesus says, uh, Love the Lord your God with your, all of your being, and the second is like it, uh, what comes next? Anyone remember? Verse 40 says, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now you may have that memorized, but even if you have, I wonder if it struck you. Law and the prophets, well, that's how they talked about their Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Which parts of it? Jesus says, all of it. All the law and the prophets hang on, depend upon. All those 600 plus commands, including the 10, 
all the prophets, all the wisdom literature, the whole Bible hinges upon and at bottom leads back to love, love, love. Now to say this is a significant statement is an understatement. To say that we have not fathomed the implications of what Jesus is telling us is accurate. The starting point for God's law, all of them, what they come from, what they exist for, is love. Everything flows from love. All of God's laws are a result of God's love. Now, is that how the church is predisposed to think about or interact with God's law? Is that how we engage with the law of God? See, it's one thing to say that we miss the heart of God and that causes us to miss the heart of the person in front of us. But step back and consider, how have we missed the heart of God? And I believe it may have something to do with our not grasping what Jesus is drawing out for us here. How the law of God relates to the love of God. Law and love. I mean, don't we tend to treat these like opposing forces? to be balanced on a scale, law and love, that we sense that putting too much weight on on one without the other uh, distorts both, that uh, love without law is flimsy sentimentality, but law without love is arid rigidity. Uh, We know they're both important, but we don't know how to hold them together. And yet Jesus tells us that these are not like sides of a seesaw. These are not opposing forces so that elevating one lessens the other. What does he say? All the law and the prophets hang on, depend upon love. All of God's laws were given as expressions of God's love. A friend of mine pointed me to a sermon on this topic um, uh, by Andy Stanley, and I have to admit I was hesitant to reference him because In the Christian subculture, there's a lot of controversy around him right now surrounding how he navigates questions of sexuality in the church. But my friend and I were at this conference on difficult conversations, uh, on contentious topics where people are sharply divided, and I really like how he talked about this. He said, I came to the conclusion that given my pretty strong disagreements with him, it's actually particularly appropriate for for me to make use of him at a conference where we are wrestling with how to disagree well, with how to continue to listen and stay in relationship and conversation with and see the value, uh, even, uh, with, even with the people whom we disagree. He said, uh, look first to identify what is good and true and then build a bridge. Look first to identify what is good and true and then build a bridge. So I'm following his lead because I, I also appreciated how uh, Stanley captured this. He said, It wasn't as if God was in heaven uh, before creation looking at His laws and said, Look at all these wonderful laws of mine. These laws are so great, uh, but I, just, I have no one to follow them. You know, I should create people so there will be someone to obey all of my wonderful laws. Uh, now we know that the, the ordering is wrong. It's backwards. Uh, Parents don't have kids because they really want someone to follow their rules. You know, no jumping on the bed, no pinching your brother. You know, let's have kids so we can impose our laws. 
you know, no chips on the sofa. Uh, good parents love their kids and have kids out of a desire to love and to love well, then put the family rules in place for the good of their kids, for the well-being of their kids, out of love for them. Same with God. And love, the God who is love, created people. See, people are the priority, not the laws. The laws are in service of the people. God created and then gave the law to everyone He created, which happens to be everyone. Because as our maker, our designer, God knows which choices will make our lives flourish. He knows what's best for us is to be in relationship with Him. And our relationship with Him will flourish the more we reflect Him in whose image we were made. So God gave the law in service of His love. Or to put it another way, God's law is an expression of God's care. Now to say this doesn't feel natural, this too is an understatement. Because we are inclined to view God's law as inhibiting, denying, limiting, thou shalt not. We are inclined to see God's law like broccoli or like flossing our teeth. <laughs> Something we know we should like. Yes, it's good for us, but moreover, we are predisposed in our own life to reverse this ordering. Instead of law serving love, we fall back into the trap and keep falling back into the trap of seeing the law and keeping the law as a means of earning God's acceptance, staying in God's good graces. And wasn't this the very distortion of the law, uh, the atmosphere in which Jesus walked? <coughs> Wasn't this how the religious leaders of his day looked at the law of God? To take an example from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. You remember the story? Jesus and his disciples are passing through a grain field on the Sabbath, and they are hungry. So they are picking off the tips of the stalks of grain for a snack, which is perfectly legal. But there's some Pharisees nearby, who were, those who were scrupulous about keeping God's laws. And remember what they asked Jesus. This is Mark 2. Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? You can't pick stalks. Because not, not the Bible, their own oral tradition said this was a form of harvesting. And harvesting is work. And all work is prohibited on the Sabbath. So they think they're honoring God by standing up for the law. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't create people so there'd be someone to keep His laws. No, the laws are an expression of His love. Let's just stay on the Sabbath as an example. The fourth commandment. Why is the Sabbath a commandment? <laughs> Why is that singled out as one of the most important words of God? Because God made us. God knows how important a rhythm of rest is. Rest for our bodies, rest for our souls. Because God loves us, He gives us this one in seven gift. And I love what Barbara Brown Taylor says about the Sabbath. It's a gift we are so reluctant to accept that God had to command us to take it. See, the Sabbath was made for man. The law was made for man, not man for the law. And I think once you start tracing out the implications of this, the ripples, uh, they just don't stop. This changes how we see not just the Sabbath, but all the laws of God. 
all the laws of God were given not to limit our happiness, not broccoli, not pinch your nose and swallow. Several years ago, a good friend of mine graduated from a prestigious law school, and he told me the commencement speaker referenced a poem by W.H. Auden. Auden was a world-famous poet back when those existed. <laughs> Famous poets. And Auden infamously converted to Christianity as a young intellectual. But he wrote this poem, and here are just a few lines. Uh, Law, says the priest, with a priestly look, expounding to an unpriestly people. Law is the words in my priestly book. Law is my pulpit and my steeple. Law, says the judge, as he looks down his nose, speaking clearly and most severely. Law is, as I've told you before, law is, but let me explain it once more, law is the law. Yet, law-abiding scholars write, law is neither wrong nor right. Law is only crimes, punished by places and by times. Others say law is our fate. Others say law is our state. Others say, others say, law is no more. Law has gone away. And always the loud, angry crowd, very angry and very loud. Law is we. And always the soft idiot, softly, me. If, therefore, thinking it absurd to identify law with some other word, I can at least confine your vanity and mine to, stated, to stating timidly, like love, I say. Like love, we don't know where or why. Like love, we can't compel or fly. Like love, we often weep. Like love, we seldom keep. And that's the title of Auden's poem, Law Like Love. Auden, <clears throat> a brilliant man that he was, understood the point exactly that all of God's laws are in service of God's love. And this starts to change how we understand not just the law of God, but all these big frightening religious words, like, like the word sin. Have you ever stopped and considered what makes a sin a sin? If the law is an expression of God's care, then what is sin? Well, it's not the violation of an, an, of an impersonal code like the speed limit. Have you ever thought when someone breaks the speed limit, we don't call that a sin? Uh, one old writer, uh, Ignatius, I, I, <clears throat> I love his definition. He said, sin is the unwillingness to believe that what God desires is our deepest happiness. When we sin, we are choosing our own understanding of what will make us satisfied and fulfilled. We're not breaking God's law as an impersonal rule. We are breaking God's heart in a personal relationship. Our sins grieve God's heart because the creature God loves is breaking his or her own life. It's not the law that God wants to protect. We break our lives when we break God's law. Why does God care so much? Because God cares so much about us, about people. This is a complete paradigm shift for most people, especially if you grew up around the church. It changes uh, how we envision how people change. Our parenting, or mine at least, shows me more than anything how very little I have understood what Jesus has been trying to tell me here. See, it's easy to read the New Testament and watch how Jesus interacts with those religious leaders and think, get them, Jesus. 
but it's devastating to realize how often I fall into this very same pharisaical trap with the people that I care about. Using the law in the name of love to convince, convict, coerce, and control. So we turn to our verses on controversial matters. We open our Bibles and say, look what, look what God says. It's so clear. And we wonder why that backfires. Because we're going against the grain of God's universe. Maybe you've heard the phrase, people don't change until they no longer feel they have to change in order to be loved. It's only when we're convinced that we're loved before we change that we might finally begin to want to. But when we sense that someone is coming at us with an agenda to make us change, we resist. We defend ourselves. We resist out of fear. And as they say, whatever resists, persists. Why is that? Because as Jesus was trying to tell us, the law never works as a lever of change. And it is critical that we grasp this, you and I, because this is not just some interesting point about God's law, is it? It gets to the very heart of the gospel. There are laws for you to follow because you are loved. You are not loved because you follow the laws. And it's only when our hearts finally become experientially convinced that we were loved before we changed, before we ever thought about changing, that we might want to obey because we begin to trust that God's laws really are an expression of God's great care for me. So take another <clears throat> huge religiously fraught word, repentance. This changes how we understand repentance. It ceases to mean what people in churches hear when they hear that word, is stop doing bad things, like the old Bob Newhart line. Remember that? Just stop, stop. it. Just stop it. Uh, as if our greatest problem was, a one, was one of a lack of information. As if repentance were just behavioral modification. Just stop it. This is a place where ancient biblical wisdom departs from ancient Greek wisdom. Because in answer to that question, what's our problem? Socrates and Plato said it's one of knowledge. That our problem is one of ignorance. That if we only knew better, we would make a better choice. See, it's not enough to say that God's law is an expression of God's love. Part of us wants to object, so why doesn't it feel that way? Well, it won't until we are more convinced that God's disposition toward us is one of benevolence. That God's heart toward us before we change is one and is always one of compassion. Even when we are hell-bent on running away from God, ungodly enemies, God sent His Son to fulfill the law, the Bible says, that is to show us the beauty of the law, its ultimate ground, but not just to fulfill it, to rescue us, reconcile us, and bring us back, wandering children. And when that penny drops, my repentance was not a condition of God's forgiveness. It's when we grasp the kindness of God before we ever thought about turning to Him that we might want to. Then this religiously fraught word, repentance, takes on a new meaning. It becomes walking with the grain of God's world, turning back to God's intended design, a hospitality of the heart toward God's heart, convinced that God's heart wants what is best for me. 
and He's demonstrated that He loves me best. That's what the Bible's talking about when it says in Romans 2, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. The kindness. When we say to ourselves, could God really love me unconditionally and this lavishly, then we no longer want to, or at least want to want to sin because it breaks the heart. We say, I don't want to break the heart of the one I know has loved me so well and loves me best. So God, help me, enable me to do what you've commanded, even when it's hard for me and I don't understand. To give a final example, this changes how we interact, how we interact with people before they change. So if you're in a conflict with someone and you're convinced that they are wrong and what they're doing is wrong, you lead with unconditional love. Doesn't mean they get a pass. It means that your posture of forgiveness is not conditioned upon their repentance. Thank God that wasn't how God interacted with you. Nor is your posture towards them tied to your judgment of the quality or sincerity of their repentance. Because thank God that wasn't how God interacted with you. Or maybe this is. Maybe this is how you think God relates to you. Have you ever wondered why was Jesus, who was so kind to everyone, why was he so strident with the religious leaders? I mean, doesn't Jesus love Pharisees too? I mean, why, woe to you, seven times, whitewashed tombs. Why was Jesus so forceful? Because when these so-called experts in the law use the law to justify their lack of compassion for God's people, See, they were, distorting, they were distorting not just the law of God, its purpose. They were distorting the heart of God, God's character. Sincerely believing they were protecting God's concerns, yet they weren't loving people. And I wonder if this sounds familiar. Blind guides, thinking they were protecting the first commandment, violating the second and so missing the spirit of the first. In the name of defending it, they were missing the heart of what all the law and the prophets were all about. Misrepresenting God's heart in the name of standing up for God's concerns. Leading people away from God in God's name. I'm afraid this sounds all too familiar. Hardening the hearts of their listeners from being able to receive the love that God gives. See, Jesus cares so much because He cares so much. And this is a great test for us in standing up for God's concerns. Are we leading in love? See, it's easy to get self-righteous in calling out the self-righteous. <laughs> but then who's elevating law over love? <sighs> we, miss God's, we miss God's heart when we miss the purpose of God's law. We miss God's law because we have so little experiential awareness of how much we're loved, how much we've been forgiven. If we only understood how kind God has been to us and is to us in the face of our own hypocrisy, how much more compassion would we have with one another? Now, you could take this in any number of directions, but what if we just, in closing, applied this to the controversial issue with which we began? You have a child. This child comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I'm gay. 
What is the first thing you're going to say? And what might be your approach? Well, if you're convinced that God's law is an expression of God's love, that what God asks of us, even in denying us something we want, is an expression of care, if you're convinced that sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for us and has for us is our deepest happiness, if you are persuaded that God calls us to turn toward Him in all of life, and if you are convinced, which you may not be, that God's law is not unclear on this point, that we are to honor God with our bodies, and that by God's design we are not to sexualize any relationship outside of marriage. Doesn't this put the whole conversation on a different trajectory moving forward? See, it's not about the law. You wouldn't start with chapter and verse, which is not going to work. I heard a story recently about an adult child who came out to her parents. And she said, my dad's first words to me were, and even that line stopped me in my tracks. So I thought to myself, what would my first words be? But that father, I don't know him, but I wish I did, because here's what he said to his daughter. I have given my life to be your father, and nothing you could ever do could change my love for you. Is that not what we ourselves, in our disordered desires, yearn to hear? Because the issues are not so different. I'm singling this out because the church often singles it out, but only to point out that it shouldn't be singled out. They were not so different, this daughter and myself. All of God's laws are an expression of God's love. You want to love your child well. Well, isn't that what your child, isn't that what we most need to hear? Are these not God's words, not just to that daughter, but are these not the words you would want to speak to your child? Because isn't this what happened on the cross? In the person of Jesus, God says, I have given my life to be your father, and nothing you could ever do could change my love for you. I'm not saying that makes the path easier for either of us, but it does put the whole journey on a different path, doesn't it, for both of us. We're on the same path together. We're on the same path together, living into that, both of us. No longer living for love, but both of us, from love, from love. It's just one word.